Hello, and welcome to Life Stories, a podcast where I talk to memoir writers about their lives and the art of writing memoir. I'm Ron Hogan, and my guest in this episode is Elizabeth Garber. Her memoir is called Implosion. It's a memoir of an architect's daughter, as it says in the subtitle. And on that note, um, I don't know what day you're listening to this conversation, but we are having it the day after Father's Day. And it's a particularly apt time, I think, to be talking about this book. Right, right. The book is so much about my relationship with my dad. In fact, actually, when you're working on a memoir and you're trying, you have all this material and you're trying to figure out how to focus it, I realized the focus really needed to be on my relationship with my dad, even though my family plays a large part of the story. But my dad and I had a remarkable father, daughter, and teacher-student relationship, and I learned all about modern architecture and art, as well as how to garden and work on a house and all those things to finish our house and have a tempestuous, difficult relationship as well. So set the stage for our listeners. Uh, We're in in the suburbs of Cincinnati in the 1960s. Yes. It was back in the age where my mother never went to town without white gloves on. It was an old village built in the 1860s or thereabout, and then there were these beautiful winding streets and old houses, and then suddenly on the sort of on the edge of town in this big meadow, my dad starts having built this glass house, and it was in the middle of several bulldozed acres that we would eventually landscape, but it was seen as radical and upsetting and this strange wild thing. It was sort of like the modern world edging its way into this old, beautiful village. This starts, the building, the construction of the house starts when you're not quite a teenager yet. Right. And, yeah, one of the first things that we'll we'll note here is that the house isn't yet finished, and your father is making you and your two younger brothers build it with him. Right. Essentially, when once we started building the house and moved into an unfinished house, that was the end of our childhood. And that was the beginning of our working on the house. And once the house was done and everything was set up and we put up all the art and all the furniture that he had picked out and everything was all set up, but we were still surrounded by bulldozed, muddy acres. And then the next five years, or as my father would count up, 15 years of his children's lives was spent completing the gardens of his masterpiece. We weren't allowed to play with friends or go and do things on weekends until we had done our work on the gardens. Now, in some ways... I mean, let's say bare minimum, it seems impossibly strict. But, you know, if, if that's all you're being told about, it's like, oh, okay, well, he's impossibly strict, but he's instilling character. It's, you know, right. must, it must have been tough for the kids, but they got something out of it. But the problem is that's, that's the tip of the iceberg right. as far as your family is concerned. Right. I, my father was bipolar, and there was a way that in the glass house with this large great room and big loudspeakers, and he started playing music louder and louder. In a way, his personality and his ability to set limits just was expanding and expanding, and it was sort of his voice was getting stronger, and his opinions and everything that was going on in the house became more his way. So he became verbally and emotionally abusive and eventually sexually abusive. Yeah, as I was reading this, you know, one of the first sort of indications of of the emotional and the sexual abuse is when he's you know he's shacked up in this glass house and he's a nudist and he doesn't he doesn't make any accommodations for like when your friends come over right right but two you know he has this 
this weird insistence on not closing or, or was it locking or clo- you weren't even allowed to we close? We were not allowed to close bathroom doors. Right. He, yes, he would walk to the door completely stark naked except with a Time magazine over his groin. And my best friend would go, oh, your dad, he's such a character. And sort of everybody was like, oh, your dad. And one time we all went up to Canada and we were on this island and we were required to be nude so that we would have the experience of being nude. Well, you know, at 12, 13, you want to have your bathing suit on and you want to have clothes, especially with your little brothers. And we were forbidden and then we got terribly sunburned. And my best friend who had worn her bathing suit laughed at all of us. But it was seen as, oh, it was just like my dad was a character. Yeah. And that's kind of a remarkable thing to me is that even, you know, in that period, I mean, even, even if your friends were just like, oh, you know, Elizabeth's dad, what a wacky guy. I'm reading this and I'm thinking, it's like, you know, how does word not filter back to the parents? I know. Mm-hmm. I don't think anyone ever mentioned. I don't. I'm sure she never mentioned that to her parents, or she never would have been allowed to come back. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if my brother's friends had that experience of seeing my dad that way. I don't know. But there was this way. Even as a kid, I would go, "Wow, my dad's cool. He drove an XKE. He designed buildings. Oh, then there are these weird things, and then there are these things that I don't mention to anybody. And I just sort of had those things sort of set off and set aside. It wasn't until I was in my 30s or 40s and I was learning about child abuse and listening to these tapes about child abuse and realizing, oh, all these things that I experienced that we thought were just weird in our family, that was violation of our boundaries, it was emotional abuse, it was sexual abuse, and it was spiritual abuse. And we weren't allowed to be our own people, we weren't allowed to say no. I almost think that not being allowed to say no was the worst. Because then you can't protect yourself and you can't set limits until you really learn how to do that. Yeah, and as part of the consequence of that not being able to say no, you know, one of the things you write really eloquently about is that period when you're prepubescent, pubescent, and being fondled on mm-hmm. a regular basis. Right. You know, you write very eloquently about this, this, you know, in my words, not yours, mm-hmm. this kind of brain fart that immediately develops mm-hmm. right afterwards where you're like, well, that's creepy and wrong, and I should probably do something about that. And, oh, what was I thinking about again? Right. Yeah. You know, you went through years. You sort of blank out on it. You would blank out on it and then just sort of, like, default back to, like, oh, dad's cool again. Yeah. Or I hate my dad or I'm mad at my dad like Mm -hmm. teenagers do. But I never mentioned any of those things. I didn't say to my boyfriend. I didn't say to my best friend. Fortunately, actually, a lot of that, the inappropriate sexual or fondling touch all stopped once I had a boyfriend. Yeah, there's that thing. I mean, we'll get to, like, his problems with your boyfriend in a minute. But also that it's like, you know, he's clearly sexualizing you and fondling you on a regular basis, but you can't have earrings because that makes you look like a whore. Right. Which is, you know, just another aspect of his absolute domineering. Right. You know, he had to be in control of everything. Right. I couldn't pierce my ears until I was 21 because my body wasn't my own. Mm-hmm. It was his until I was 21, and boy, did that feel creepy. And then it was just like, that was just the law that he laid down in the household. It was sort of this, he was breaking away from being a Victorian, but he had this idea of owning his children that was pretty strange. You know, you don't really write about this explicitly much in the mm-hmm. memoir, I think, but I couldn't help but making these sorts of connections between his desire towards, like, absolute control Mm -hmm. and 
you know, this impulse of modernist architecture. We are going to establish dominion over the environment, over our living environment. It is going to serve us. Right. Um, you know, everything is going to be in its place and serve its function. And, you know, he treated his house the same, or he treated his kids the same way he treated his house. And at one point in the story, I talk of, I said something about, boy, you're controlling. He said, absolutely, I am. I've got to control, and to be an architect, I have to control everything to make sure everyone's safe and to make sure the building works. Micromanaging everything in a building and the design for safety and then managing us as well because he had to watch out for... I, the reason I couldn't go out with my black boyfriend was because of safety and mm-hmm. he wanted to make sure I was safe, but I also had to obey and everything. Right. He wanted to he, obey. Yeah, it's like he wanted to be very clear. It's like, oh, I'm not a racist, but you can't go out with your black boyfriend because, you know, that's not safe. Right. But there is this sort of the perfectionism of modernism mm-hmm. and the parallel of how we were to be and his control over us. And During the bulk of that adolescent period that you're writing about, his professional career is consumed by this one project that became rather infamous. Sandra Hall at the University of Cincinnati, a 27-story a dorm building that your father designed, ultimately became like, you know, kind of a symbol of the failure of modernist architecture. I remember so vividly when he came home and at dinner telling us about that he had gotten the commission. And I remember for the next three years, it was like the battle for every step along the way for the design of it, all these different things. It was in the newspaper all the time. It was just a battle all the way through what's being built. And then Students both hated it or thought it was cool or loved it, but they trashed the building, and this building was only used for 11 years. And then it stood empty for nine years, and then the university had it imploded, and it was the second largest implosion in the Western Hemisphere. It felt like, it almost felt sort of strangely poetically equivalent to my father, his implosion, and the intensity of how big his presence in our life was and in the city. Certainly the the major problems with Sandra Hall didn't manifest until years later, but even just the construction of it was pretty much the point at which his career turned downhill. And it also coincided with it was a recession, but mm-hmm. it was, and he thought he was going to just keep going, and that was his last major building. And, and at 58, it was the, almost the end of his career. And, of course, where does his rage get channeled into? Right. Yeah. It came home, and there I was, and not obeying him focused on me, and then once I broke away, then it was focused on my mom, and they ended up getting divorced, and we only lived in our glass house as a family for seven years. The whole family split apart, so there's, there's parallel implosions. Even in the time when it was happening, as, as we've said, you developed this coping mechanism of just sort of blanking out about it. Mm-hmm. What's it like then, decades later? You know, let, I guess let's first talk about the decision to even confront this. Right. In a memoir. I had never, and I've been a poet for years, and I wrote about living in Maine, and I wrote about being a mom, and I wrote about, you know, life in Maine and islands in Maine, and I had almost written nothing about my childhood. Every now and then a little something would sort of squeak through, but I had no interest. I didn't want to go back there. I didn't want to really talk or remember that about that part of my life, and then I had this heart surgery and afterwards, it was just like the stream of memory that just started coming up day after day. And I have a commitment to when ideas or thoughts come up that I write it. 
So I just started writing, and it first started out with being a little girl in the in the village and living in an old Victorian house. And every day I wrote for about an hour a day for the next two or three years. I ended up writing just about every memory I had from my childhood into my 20s. I kept thinking, I don't want to write about my dad or all of this, but it just felt like that was what I had to do, so I just... I just kept going. And then I started asking my mother and brothers for stories and for details, and they were like, I don't want to go there either. Yeah, I was going to say, like, I mean, you know, Mm -hmm. they were pretty emphatic about it. It's like, you know, we escaped that hell. Right. We we have no interest in revisiting it. Right, right. And my mom said, you know, your brothers and I will never read this. Um, My mom's read it twice now. The last time she actually had a sense of humor about it, she said, oh, your dad's yelling at your boyfriend now and lecturing him. And she was laughing and almost giddy. She said, now, do I leave pretty soon? I go, no, it's another few years. She went, oh, okay. I thought there's amazing healing that's got gone on with both my brothers and my mother about getting perspective. And I've brought things up in different ways, looking at the whole picture, bringing in all the different layers of what was going on in the culture and my dad and and gaining in some ways some compassionate understanding for him, but without excusing his behavior and helping understand what what happened for my brothers and my mom and also what was extraordinary about the brilliant, creative part of my dad as well. Because that seems to have been, you know, another of the sort of survival strategies that you and your family developed back then is that it's like, you know, good dad was great dad, actually. Yeah, Yeah. actually was. (laughs) Whereas bad dad was the dad from hell. And what's been interesting is on the research and and working on the book and then getting ready to bring out is I've come around full circle on a lot of things. I I knew that my dad had a Bugatti when I was growing up. He actually had two when he raced one of them. And I started researching and I thought, all right, I'm going to contact the American Bugatti Club and just see if they want to have this excerpt from the memoir about his Bugatti. And then I ended up having this long correspondence with this guy who's totally into Bugattis, who's the editor, and he could tell me the chassis number of both of my dad's Bugattis, and the second one is now owned by Ralph Lauren, and we found photographs of the cars now, and it was just like, wow, the amazing dad was really pretty amazing. And in a way, I think linking back to something you said earlier, what's it like to bring out this story that we all wanted to push away, and we all wanted to forget, is that growing up, Nobody knew this was going on. Or people sort of, even in articles about architecture in Cincinnati, they would refer to, well, Woody Garber was known for being tumultuous or difficult or explosive or whatever. But no one knew what happened in our family. And in a way, this is like letting it out and just saying this is what was going on. I was interviewed with someone in Cincinnati saying people are interested in his buildings, but you know, should they know about what's going on? And it's just like, Yep, it's how to see all of it, mm-hmm. and because there are a lot of tortured, destructive, brilliant people, and here's another one. It's one of those great, painful dilemmas. One of the things that I was broaching as, as we were coming around this part of the orbit was, um, yeah, he was seen as brilliant but mercurial, to the point where even his psychiatrist wrote it off as, it's like, well, you know, he's got to create. This is what you have to, you got to take the good with the bad, and and it's like, that does not really seem to me, in retrospect, like a sound mental health approach. Right. And he adored the psychiatrist. He mm-hmm. thought he was great. But it's like, but it's an interesting choice. What would have happened? What might have happened? And again, just the way that even 
as much as was getting out. I mean, you know, as you say, he had even his public image was like as you know brilliant but mercurial and explosive. Mm-hmm. You know, your boyfriend was standing at the perimeter of your house trying to see if you were okay. Like you know, when he you know at one point because your father had barricaded you in the house right for two weeks. You know, your your minister had to come over and negotiate a stand a, a truce right. And everybody was just like, well, glad we got through that. Yeah. <laughs> and my mom was, she was growing up with us, and she was sort of frozen and didn't know what to do, and thank God she actually brought in the minister. But in the culture, people sort of let the tyrants go, and there wasn't much of a pathway then on how to respond. And it would have been very different now. In a way, when you let someone get away with something and go, it's hard at that point to rein them in, but... If there had been clearer ways of setting limits earlier, maybe it wouldn't have gone so bad. Now, had you, at the point at which you started writing this and and really decided to give it the focus, Mm -hmm. as opposed to just like, you know, the the start is like, okay, let's get every childhood memory out of me that I can. And then there's a point at which you're like, okay, this needs a direction. And the direction is my father. At the point at which you chose that direction, how much of the healing that you talk about had you already was it a process of you being healed enough to be able to confront this or was the healing part of the process right i had done years of therapy and i i started i was working started working on this about 16 years after my dad had died and we had this box of all these papers and photographs and when i said to my brother that i was ready to have that box to even look at once I got the box, I was terrified to open it. And it was like I had to wait for a few weeks. And then opening it and realizing, and I describe it in the book as sort of the half-life of the radiation had sort of eased enough. And then suddenly I was fascinated. And suddenly I wanted to know, read my dad's papers and learn more about him and sort through his photographs and sort of figure out what we had lived through. And I'm glad that happened rather than... It, that it was just pushed away in a box and never looked looked at again. It was seeing like Pandora's box opening up and and just looking at everything that had been seen as just so much so monstrous to just go okay what was remarkable what was weird what was but I couldn't have done it without all those years of therapy and then it it brought another level of healing as well writing about it. Now that it's out, we touched upon this very briefly just recently in terms of like you know how things might have been different if somebody had said anything or in in times like this. You know, looking at the way that the walls are starting to come down around these things in the Me Too era. Yeah. How to put this. I mean, this is a different story in some ways, Mm -hmm. in terms of concrete details, in terms of the underlying abuse of, for lack of a more apt term, the patriarchy. Right. That this... It's the same story. Yeah, there's a there's a long pedigree to this yeah. to the story. Yeah. And this is sort of the nineteen sixties, seventies version of it, and there was a lot of this going on that is continued to what's now being called out. So the irony is the book is coming out paralleling a time where there's a lot of this calling out and even though people have been calling it out in different ways over the last few decades it's interesting that the book is coming out now, and it took this long. When the first books, copies of the book arrived at my house, there was a part of me who was like, oh gosh, here it's going out in the world, and who am I to let this out, or what? It, and then it's sort of relaxing into it, and then 
one person at a time reading it, and then people going, this is so powerful, and this helps me understand, and this helps me, and and I'm already starting. I, it's been out a week and starting to run into people saying, I just finished your book, I couldn't put it down. Or even though I grew up on an island and had a poor family, this paralleled so much of what my I went through in my family. And it's like for whatever help it is or a value it is, because I, I don't think I could have written it earlier because the way because I had done all that personal work, but then coming to a way to understand the patriarchy, the cultural things that were going on in the 60s and 70s, and putting all these pieces together, and to not just completely write him off as a monster, mm-hmm. but to see what forces in the culture had created him to be the way he was, and the, the lack of help that he had, and how grateful I am that I've had all the help that I have had. Yeah, it's just like like in all those decades before you were prepared yeah. emotionally to be able to do this. You know, do you see something like, say, you know, the great Santini pops up on the radar? Do you see that and be like, oh my God, I recognize that? Or does your mind just sort of like, you know, bracket that out because it doesn't want to recognize mm. that? I mean, there have been different movies or different stories that I would go, hmm, that's getting pretty close. Or even as um, Prime of Miss Jean Brody of a powerful mentor teacher sort of controlling or developing someone's mind mm-hmm. um, and realizing that was, it was like I've gotten different parts of the story or understanding of it or like watching the movie of the glass castle and the crazy dad and watching him going crazy and then sometimes going that's getting a little too close and and then looking to see how it was close or different or as you we touched upon when we discussed the onset of the writing here I mean you're a poet yeah. So this was a big... Huge shift. A huge structural shift for you. Yeah. <laughs> it was a story that was too big for poetry. Mm-hmm. Well, the irony is, after all these memories started coming out, I didn't write poetry for three or four years, and I've hardly written much poetry since. I, my, it was like my brain shifted over to prose, or I had a story so big, I had to f- have a different way of, of, of working it than in poetry. But as one of my mentors said, you know, my poetry is still alive and well in my prose. Yeah, I was going to say, is there anything, any sort of lesson from poetry that you were able to apply to the writing of, of, of your prose? I feel like there are different scenes, like there are some scenes that are very difficult, and in a way I sort of carved them and made them minimal and sort of made them almost like a grouping of poems, even though it was prose. And I think I... I worked with the language in certain ways to sometimes, shh, you know, how I worked with the sound of the language or how I worked with sometimes very short phrases and a series of those to just slow the emphasis down and sort of make the language more powerful. So I feel like I used a lot of the vitality of the language of poetry in the prose. Now that this is out in the world and you're starting to talk about it with, with other people, you know, where is your writing headed? Are you circling back to poetry or is prose still in your system? Prose is still in my system, right? I have some other stories to tell. and But thinking, hmm, because some people have said, why did I not write this as fiction? And this one needed to be prose memoir and nonfiction. But I'm wondering about another story I have to tell whether it's going to be fiction or not, and then what do I get to learn about fiction that I haven't learned from nonfiction? So I always like to be learning. Well, that is something to keep an eye out for. Uh, In the meantime, Implosion, a memoir of an architect's daughter, is out, and you should look for that. Its author is Elizabeth W. Garber, and I have been talking with her on this episode of Life Stories. 
If you've enjoyed this episode, you can subscribe to it on iTunes. You can also rate and review it there. And the more stars you put on it and the more you tell people how awesome it is, please, the easier it becomes for other people to find it as well. I'm Ron Hogan. Thank you for listening today, and I hope to join you again soon.